it's, it's, in, the, it's in the stand up there. Um, first one is you go out. So we've got a, a handout that should get us through a couple of weeks at least. So we're going to pick up, we're not going to pick up where we left off. I know I didn't quite finish the last lesson, but at this point, um, I don't know if anybody would still have their notes, and I don't have my notes, so we're, we're going to move right on to, into the next part of this. So the next part of this, we're looking at the Baptist distinctives, being Baptist. That's what we're looking at. So we've looked at already biblical authority and the lordship of Christ. We looked at the autonomy of the local church. The P there, uh, the priesthood of believers. T being two ordinances, baptism and communion. And that's where we were at the last time we were here, which would have been, I guess, the 13th of December, the, the Wednesday night before we had our candlelight service. Uh, so that was, we finished up with communion. And so tonight we're going to get into the I of Baptist, and it's individual soul liberty. Individual soul liberty. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that phrase. Really? Okay, excellent. Good. Now you're going to learn why you're a Baptist, okay? That's part of part. Big part of being a Baptist is this, this understanding of soul liberty the freedom that we have and each person has, their freedom and their responsibility. So uh, the lesson aim of this tonight is to emphasize the historic Baptist belief that every individual has the absolute right before God and man to decide for himself what to believe or not to believe without coercion or force from any outside source or power. Just based on that statement right there, I'm confident everybody in here would say, I agree with that. I agree with that. You know, because here's the thing about us, you know, my, my belief as a Christian, which is a Baptist belief, but I believe it's a Christian, it's a proper Christian belief, is that every person has the right to believe whatever they want to believe. They have that right. And while I may, I may argue vehemently with them, I'm not going to try to force them into, into a belief. Let me give you a quick story that came to mind. When we were in Indiana... We had a young couple that visited our church, and uh, <clears throat> they visited a couple of times. So I went out on visitation, and I got to go and visit with them and sit in their home and, and got to share the gospel with them. And, and right there in their living room, man, the husband and wife both got right down on their knees, right there in their living room, and prayed to receive Christ. They'd been in church. Her father was a pastor. They'd been in another church, but they'd never heard the gospel, never been challenged with the gospel. And they trusted. I, I believe it was a genuine, a real strong decision. And, uh, and so they, they made that, and they made a profession of faith at our church. Well, the, they were living in a mobile home, and it turns out that, that her father owned the mobile home. And he ended up, the father was a Lutheran pastor up there in Indiana. And he, when you talk about coercion, he told them that if they didn't come back to his church that they were going to get out of his house. And so that, that's, a, that's, that's coercion. That's, that's strong-arming someone. It's manipulating someone. It's forcing someone. Look, we want to speak truth, and the reason we're going to be vehemently fighting for truth is because we believe it is truth. But each person has the right to reject that, and, and then they have the responsibility of answering for it. So looking at the meaning of individual soul liberty or soul competency... When we think of religious atrocities that have been perpetrated on others throughout history, we as Baptists are horrified that there were and are now various religious philosophies that seek to force others to conform to a particular set of beliefs and or practices. Examples today would include various Islamic sects, 
that would impose their interpretation of the teachings of Muhammad on others through civil law and even military force. Now, you all understand, I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here. What we see today, and it's, we're going to talk about this a couple of times, but it's not just Islam today, but, but Islam is absolutely, it's either, you're an infidel. If you're not following Allah, you're, you're an infidel, and they will either, you either convert or, or be killed. That's, that's, you know, what's the, the that's, two strong choices. That's what they would do. But if you think about it, even all around the world today, religions, uh, religions, not Christianity, but religions force that. And there's uh, just about any religion you think of. You go into Mexico, we, the year before last when we had our mission conference and we had Greg, Greg, uh, uh, Greg Larson, right, Greg Larson, who was a missionary down there in Mexico, and he even talked about, and there wasn't as much persecution there, but the Catholic Church oppresses any, any other kind of church that would come in trying to, to, to win people. They would, they would oppress them. They would go against them, and even in, in some violent ways. They would work against them politically. Every way they could imagine, they would work against them. So it's not just Islam, but there's a lot of that that goes on around the world today. Yet when we recall various aspects of the Christian Crusades, Christian Crusades, and certainly the Catholic Inquisitions of the Middle Ages, we recognize that many of these um, outrages have occurred in the name of Christ, though Christ himself surely was angered by these actions carried out in his name. So there have been Christian, Christian things who would profess Christ who have, have, have done these very types of things, forcing religion on people, making them uh, bow down to something or making them profess to something that maybe they didn't believe. In contrast, Baptists and their spiritual ancestors, known by other names, have been consistent from their ancient beginnings in standing resolutely for the rights of every person to pursue their own faith, worship God according to the dictates of their own heart, or even to reject faith altogether if, if that is the choice of their heart. Though Baptists have been throughout history the recipients of religious oppression in many forms, they have never sought to be the perpetrators of using the power of the civil government force of arms or intellectual arm twisting to suppress the faith of others or manipulate or, or I'm sorry or mandate that anyone conform to a particular religious view. Now Romans 14 uh, verse 11 and 12 says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. So here's the deal. We believe that you have a right to believe whatever you want to. But your right to believe whatever you want to does not exempt you from answering for whatever it is that you choose to believe. If you choose to reject Christ, then you get to answer for rejecting Christ. If you choose to, to denounce Christianity, if you, whatever, you have the right to choose to believe whatever you want to believe. And it, it kind of goes with what Raymond says. You know, you choose to sin, choose to suffer. You choose to make your choices. The consequences of your choices you don't have a choice in. Okay? You have freedom to choose, but you don't get to choose the consequences, and everyone will stand before God. Everyone will stand before God and give an account of himself to God. So, description here. Every individual has a God-given right to choose what is his conscience or soul, or, or soul dictates is right and is responsible to God alone for his choices. 
Matters of conscience are not to be forced on any person against his will. As people of the book, Baptists take the Scripture seriously. Hence the scriptural admonitions to, as Romans 12, 18 says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peace, peaceably with all men. 1 Peter 3.11 says, Seek peace and pursue it. Baptists of all generations have sought to practice this. In this pursuit, the cross of Christ is the heart of Baptist, uh, in the heart of Baptists has never been a weapon of intimidation. That might, be your first, that might be the first blank in there, is the weapon of intimidation. Baptists aren't, we don't use the gospel, we don't use the cross as a weapon of in, uh, intimidation as it was in the, middle, uh, the medieval cru, uh, crusades against the Muslims, nor an instrument of torture as it was during the Roman Catholic Inquisitions. Rather, for Baptists, the cross has always been a symbol of love and respect. And then when we, when we look to the cross, that's what we think about. When we want to share that with others, it is in love and respect for others in the name of Jesus Christ. This was the motivation that drove early Baptist leader Roger Williams to found the Rhode Island Colony, the first community in Western civilization that guaranteed by law that each individual had the right to follow his or her own conscience in matters of religion. This is why Baptist leaders in the newly established American colonies petitioned Thomas Jefferson to advocate for complete religious liberty in the United States with no state-sponsored church, which was officially enshrined in the United States Constitution's First Amendment. Now, we want that. We don't, we don't, I, I, don't, I don't think we want to be a theocracy. We want religious liberty. We want a separation, but it's not a separation, you know, it's not a separation of church and state in the sense that they try to make it. But we don't want, what we don't want is a church-sponsored government. We don't want the government endorsing, you know, one, one religion. That's what, man, that's what they, so many fleed to come here was to have that freedom of religion. And, and we, wouldn't, we wouldn't want to live under that today. In some, whenever a person's right of individual conscience or choice is being violated, Baptists have stood for the freedom of the individual. Whenever civil government has sought to use its power to restrict an individual's desire to worship or not to worship, Baptists have historically defended the person against the power of the state. I was thinking about um, e even with Martin Luther, and the, when you read about Martin Luther and he makes his stand and... and uh, you know, the fight that goes on. The, the Anabaptists stood with him. They stood and fought for him, for his right and what he was trying to do. Well, when he got into power, he had a whole lot of those Anabaptists murdered, had them killed. You know, so it's... Um, the Baptists have always been on the side of, of, of soul liberty, that you have the right to believe what you want to believe. So biblical doctrine of soul liberty. In discussing soul liberty, we are reminded... From Scripture that God created individuals, not masses. Accordingly, the doctrine of soul liberty and soul comp competency is firmly rooted in Scripture. And we see this supported by many biblical principles. So we want to look at a few of these um, as we go. So first one here is God created men and women as individuals. So as we're looking at this as, as we're not a mass. It's not that God's going to look down here and go, oh, y'all joined First Baptist Geneva, but well, you're good. You get a check mark. 
or you join this other church, so as a whole, boom, you all get the big X. You don't make it. So it's, it's not like that. It's not done by masses. Each one of us, when God created, he created people as individuals, not as just big mass groups. And we go back to Genesis 127, and we see this, 127 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, for the, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. No two human, no two, two human beings, um, not even identical twins, are exactly alike in every way. Um, it's interesting we talk about no two snowflakes are ever the same. I don't know how many snowflakes are, have ever fallen, but that's an amazing thing to think about, that no two are ever identical. It seems like that would be an, an impossibility that they wouldn't, there wouldn't be. A, but they're, they, scientists say they're, they're never identical. And people are never identical. And it's amazing you can have people, even identical twins, as this says, even identical twins, uh, it's amazing with identical twins, they're still very different. Their fingerprints are different. They may be identical in their appearance, but they're, they're not identical. Even the DNA may, may match, but their fingerprints are, are unique. They're, the pattern within their eye is, is now they're doing all these retinal scans and all those different things because they, they say each eye is absolutely unique. It's like fingerprints. seems like there was something else I read the other day that was talking about how unique individuals, every individual is because the patterns of different things, and I can't remember, it was something else, but you've, you've, you've heard of the eye, reading the retina, and fingerprints. There was something else, though, that, that I, I thought, wow, that's crazy that that. It might have even been as, as much as, might have been as crazy as like the, the texture on your tongue. It, it might have been something like that, that every tongue is unique, and no two would ever be alike in the way that, and it sounds weird, but that's, I think that's what it was, actually. Maybe wrong, uh, but but we're unique. God didn't create a bunch of the same things. We're all unique in creation. God gave men and women the image of Himself. This biblical teaching is often expressed in the Latin term "imago Dei," translated to English as "image of God." The imago Dei signifies this the symbol, uh, symbolical connection between God and humanity. The phrase originated from, from Genesis 1.27, which states God created man in his own image. Now, this biblical passage does not imply that God is in human form. You know, when people, people sometimes have mistakenly, they, they read that, that God created man in his own image. And what they think is this human body. They think this, and they think, well, we must, be, we must look like God looks. Well, that's not, what, that's not the image that we were created in. It doesn't imply that God is in human form, but that humans are in the image of God in their moral, spiritual, and intellectual essence. That is, in creation, God made each person with his own mind, so the intellect, the feelings, and emotion, and will, your volition. What do you do? What do you desire to do? What do you want to do? It's, the, it's what motivates you, or it's what you choose to do. It's your will, and those are created in God's image. Human beings are not automations or, or robots but, uh, before God, but individuals with the God-given ability to choose. We're not just, um, you know, we're not just, we're not programmed uh, to, to, you know, to where we, we, what would it be? It would be like, uh, 
You know, God could have made us with no choice. He could have made us to where He made us to where we could not do anything else. We could not choose anything else but to follow Him blindly. Well, we would just be machines. We'd be mechanical. And that's not real love. If someone makes you love them, if there's not a choice in the matter, it's not real love. And so God wanted us to love Him. And so in order to have real love, there has to be choice. If you know, if you held someone hostage, if I held Gina hostage, y'all don't know that. that's what I did. I held her hostage and, and, and held her long enough that that she she fell in love with her captor. You know, I'd read about that that whatever that syndrome there is, and so what Stockholm Stockholm syndrome. That's what it was. So I I held her long enough captive in the basement that when she fell in love with me, and and then then you know then so, but there would be no there's no choice in that. Right? There's no choice in that. That's a perverted thing. And uh, so we're not robots. We're not robots. We are created with the ability to choose, and God gives us that freedom to choose. Whatever theological uh, implications may be considered, it is still true that the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, chose to disobey God, which caused the sentence of death to come upon the human race. So Genesis 3, 6, and 7, So that when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew, what they, that, they, knew that they were naked, and they, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. Now as you read that, not a, not a thing in there sounds like somebody else made decisions for them. They made those decisions. Satan came in the garden, came, came in and tempted, tempted Eve, and Eve listened to Satan, listened to the things that were being said, the denials, the, 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 the doubt that was sowed, and then, the boy, the big one is you'll be like God. God knows if you eat of this fruit, you'll be like him, knowing, knowing good and evil. There's that desire. So all of that was sowed in, but they made the choice. They had the freedom to tell Satan to take a hike. And they didn't, okay? So there was, there was a freedom to choose, and they chose to sin. Don't you wish you could throat punch them right now? <laughs> Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Okay, so that's our first point, is that God created men and women um, as individuals. The second point, God ministers... God ministers to men and women as individuals. Ephesians 4, 7, put to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Romans 12, 3, for I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has, has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So the Bible is clear that God ministers to Christian believers as individuals. He doesn't just minister to a group of people. He didn't even minister to the Jews, his chosen people, that way. They were just one big glob of mass of people, and he just dealt with them all exactly the same way. He ministers to them as individuals, and he ministers to us as 
individuals. Yes, the church as the body of Christ is essential for the spiritual growth and development of any follower of Christ. However, it is not the church as a whole that God will judge or hold accountable. We see this principle manifested in several ways in Scripture. Now, the first is that God saves people as individuals. There's not, there's not a, you know... Uh, with, our, with all our critical race theory and all that, we have this, uh, this idea today of, of um, brain misfiring a little bit, um, uh, of collective, if that's the right word, collective salvation or, or social salvation. It's, it, but it, it has to do with a whole group of people. It has to do, you know, Obama talked about this stuff. And, and it's this idea of, of, of the, when you can change everything and you twist powers and different things, there's this collective salvation. God doesn't work that way. It's an individual salvation because we're sinners individually. Each one of us is, is unique and separate. And so we, we have to, if we're going to be saved, it's an individual salvation. Peter gave the first gospel invitation of the church age when he called out, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. It's Acts chapter 2. Paul said in Romans 10, 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a call for individuals to be saved. These passages, along with many others, clearly indicate that salvation is a personal decision and cannot be made by proxy or by another person. In addition, once a person trusts Christ for salvation, his position within the body of Christ is divinely ordained as an individual person. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleases. Okay? So salvation is an individual thing. It's not a collective thing. It's not that I got saved and now my family, they're all saved because they're a part of my family. I have, to, I have to make a decision for salvation. Gina has to make that decision. Our children had to make that decision. They'll have children. Those, those children will have to make that decision. That's, that's the decision they will be faced with when they're faced with the gospel, and they'll have to choose whether or not, but their salvation is an individual thing. It's not a collective thing. Second, God gives individual Christians spiritual gifts with which to serve Him. Repeatedly, the phrase, each one is used in the New Testament when referring to the gifts that the Holy Spirit bestows on God's people for service. One example among many will suffice. In Ephesians 4, 7, it says, But to each one, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. You can also see 1 Corinthians 12, 7, 12, 11, 12, 27, and Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. I hope those verses, I think I left those in your notes you can go back and read those. But each one is talking about the, 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 the individualness that God ministers to us. Next thing is men and women make decisions as individuals. Again, this is not, there's not a, a, it's not a family tie. It's not a collective thing. It's individuals make decisions. While people are often caught in circumstances not of their own making, including situations involving mental handicap or incapa uh, incapacitation, it is nevertheless true that the overwhelming majority of people make their own decisions in life, even in adverse conditions. Of course, the most important choice for one to make is the decision to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Yet, even after becoming a believer, Christians as individuals make critical choices concerning faithful service to God or disobedience to Him. 
We'll go to Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. will give us an, uh, some, some insight into that. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, he's begging them. I beseech you. When that, that phrase is a begging. He's begging them to make a decision by the mercies of God, based upon all the mercies that God has poured into your life, all of the mercies of God. And we read through this, all of Romans leading up to that is talking about the mercies of God. He said, but, that, but that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's a choice. Folks, that's a choice. That's, that's not some decision being made for someone else. Paul is saying, you need to make this choice, believer. You need to, I'm begging you, submit yourself to God. Present yourself a living sacrifice. What is a living sacrifice? Well, we've talked about that. A living sacrifice is you're dead to self. You've been sacrificed to God on the altar. You, you've given up your rights and, and to yourself, and you live for Him. The fact is we've been bought with a price. We are His. We're not ours. People say, I don't belong to anyone. You belong to, you belong to somebody else. Everybody's a slave. You're a slave to Satan and sin, or you're a slave to Jesus Christ. You are His. You're not His. You know, it's a bad translation. I really believe it's a bad translation, uh, the, the, the bondservant, the, the phrase bondservant. Because we get this idea of bondservant, well, I'm a servant. You know, it's like being an indentured servant. I choose to follow the Lord. And, you know, after seven years, if I want to stay longer, he can pierce my ear with the awl to the, the door. You know, that's the, that's the way that, that thing was worked. That's not, that's not the picture of what this is. The word is slave, doulos. We're a slave. We are his. He has bought us. He paid the price. We've been ransomed and we belong to him. But we still have choices to make. Even though we belong to him, we still have to make the choice. And Paul's saying here, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's the very least you can do. He died for you. He died for you. He died a horrible death for you. The absolute least that you can do is to live your life that was ransomed out of hell by him than to live it for him. That's the idea. And do not be conformed to this world. Again, here's choices. Do not be conformed to this world because that, that's a choice. We choose not to be or to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the Bible teaches that individual Christians are never to blindly follow any religious leader or Christian tradition without question. They are rather called upon to exercise spiritual discernment and judge all things by Scripture. Regarding the teaching of the great apostle Paul himself, the book of Acts commends the Bereans for judging even Paul's doctrine by the truth of Scripture. They judged it. They looked at what he said and they went back to the Scriptures. They went back to the truth and they compared it to see if what Paul was saying was the truth. Acts 17.11 these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They believed Paul, but they, but they didn't just take it blindly. They went back and they searched the scriptures. Is what he's saying true? Is that right? And we should all be doing that. 
Furthermore, Paul stated in Romans 14, 5, that each Christian is to be fully convinced in his own mind on matters of faith. Romans 14, 5, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. What does that sound like? It sounds like a choice. It sounds like you as an individual have to be you have to come to that being settled in what it is you believe. Be fully convinced in your own mind. All these examples point to Christians as individuals and the choices they make regarding obedience or disobedience to God's Word. Next, God's te- uh, God teaches men and women as individuals. So He teaches them. So what are we seeing? So God created men and women as individuals. God ministers to men and women as individuals. Men and women make decisions as individuals. Now God teaches men and women as individuals. 1 John 2, verse 27 says, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need, uh, anyone, need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. So 1 John 2.27 reveals that the Holy Spirit teaches individual Christians who have uh, receptive hearts. I think I shared this a long time ago. Uh, one, of, one of the great, I think he's one of the great writers of our time, was a, a man named uh, John Phillips. He was from Wales. Y'all may have heard John Phillips uh, it was a blessing to be able to hear him in person. Being from Wales, he could read the phone book, and you would be like, wow, that's cool. You know, so he had a great voice. He had a great preaching voice, and he, and he was just a, he was a great, humble man. But years ago, back when we were still in Georgia, I was on staff at Grove Level Baptist, and we had him come in for a Bible conference, and they needed someone to, to pick him up from the hotel and get him to the church take him out after church and take him out to eat or whatever and get him back to the hotel. Nobody wanted to do that. I was like, y'all crazy. I'll do that. Just, to, just to, you know, you want somebody like that. It's written. I got books like this on my shelf that this man's written. I'm like, yes, I'll do that. So one night I had taken him to dinner. He was a very quiet man, very, just seemed just very humble to me, a very humble man. But I asked him, I said, Dr. Phillips, and anytime I'd ask him a question, he would just, he'd just turn and smile. Yes. And uh, I said, Dr. Phillips, I said, where did, you, where did you go to school? Where did you gain this knowledge? And he told me, he said, the same place you can go, young man. The Holy Spirit of God is the best teacher. Wow. Because everybody I've ever talked to in my whole life says, well, you got to go to this school. you got to go to that school. you got to follow this tradition. you follow that tradition. Dr. Phillips says, no. He said, the Holy Spirit of God is the best teacher. Let the Holy Spirit of God teach you. Again, Christians are not to blindly follow others in matters of faith and doctrine. On the contrary, God's Spirit will teach those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew 5, 6. And thus they will be able to discern what is true and what is false. And that's, the, that's, that's it, man. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we study the Scriptures, you know, I can remember people would, this is probably more of a, I've seen this. I've seen this more in the independent Baptist circles. But people would go to the preacher to want to know what they, sh- how they should think about something. Now, I don't want y'all. I don't. I, I, I welcome anybody that wants to come and ask my opinion on anything. But but it should always go back to scripture. But see, I want you to know what the scriptures say. 
Because if you know what the Scriptures say, you don't have to come to me to wonder what God says about it. Amen? See, when you study the Scriptures and you know what the Scriptures say, then when you, when you look at the world through the Scriptures, you know whether or does it line up or not. Nope, that doesn't line up. Oh, that lines up. You, you, you can get right from wrong when you match it up with Scripture, but you've got to know what the Scriptures say. That's why it's so important that we, that we study the Scriptures, that we're in the, the Scriptures, and we know what the Bible says, because then when we hear lies, it's amazing. Stuff that doesn't match up with what we know Scripture says, it's, so, it's just so quickly uh, comes to us. In fact, Jesus, in fact, Jesus declared in John 16, 13, that the Holy Spirit's ministry to believers in this dispensation is to guide you as Christians into all truth. John uh, 13, uh, 16, 13 says... Whoever, I'm sorry, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. The implication of these truths is that each believer, as an individual, must become a student of Scripture himself. Hebrews 12:5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of of righteousness, for he is a babe. 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, this does not discount the biblical truth that God empowers and calls gifted believers to serve the body of Christ as faithful teachers and preachers in the church. It only emphasizes that Christians are not simply to be spoon-fed God's truth from gifted teachers, but are to be constant learners on their own as well. Amen? Amen. Need to be learning. We need to be in here. There's, There's something about the preaching of the Word of God. There's something about the teaching of the Word of God. But we as individuals, you know, we're... Raymond preached a fantastic message Sunday morning. Just fantastic. I was here. I was in the back. I was in my chair going, uh, and watching him. And, uh, and I was trying to watch him. I think I was out of one eye most of the time. But I was listening. Man, what a great, great message. Well, we, we need that, right? We need to hear that in this format. We need that. But, folks, you can get the same, the same nutrition out of studying the same Scripture yourself. Right? So God has designed this thing that we come together. We're encouraged together. We do not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. We need this time. I need this time. And I feel like I've been gone for a month. And I missed one Sunday and wasn't in here the second Sunday. I feel like I've been gone for, I mean, I'm not looking out going, man, there's faces. I don't know who y'all are. But we can, we can while that's important, Get in the Word yourself. Dig it. Mine it out. Amen, Randy? Randy studies the Word. Randy, Randy took me on a challenge years ago, I think, and, and with studying names and individual words and what they mean and digging into those deep truths. It doesn't take a lot of work to really dig out some great truths in the Word of God. There's a lot there. did some reading over the weeks that I've been... Um, the, the last two weeks when I could, finally got my eyes where they lined up together again and I could read, I've been reading some Louis L'Amour. And how many of you read Louis L'Amour? So I've got a book on his collected short stories. So I was reading one. It was a two and a half page story. But he's talking about this guy and he goes up and he finds this gold. He goes up and he's, 
he's prospecting this gold up on, and he's up like this. But every time he chisels out something, he's under, he's digging out the foundation of this big old rock. And if it falls, he's done. This is the whole story. But he's pulling out just huge. I mean, he's found a huge thing of gold. All that said to say this, the Bible's not like going and panning and finding, oh, man, I got a little bitty flake in there. Yeah, another 15,000 of those, and I'll have a half ounce. It's not like that. The Bible's like going, and there's this big old thing of gold that's running through. And, I mean, you just start chunking it out in big old globs of it. It's not hidden. The Lord wants you to learn His Word. So when you study His Word, He's going to reveal His Word. The Holy Spirit of God indwells you as He does me. And He teaches you as He does me. So as you get in there and you read it, and you go, I don't quite understand. The more you read it, the better you're going to understand. If you you took the challenge and read through it, if you didn't do anything else, but you took the challenge to read the Bible cover to cover this year, you're going to learn. Because you're going you're gonna to read things you've never read before. And then one day you're going to hear something. Like we go to Israel. First time I went to Israel, and we go to a place called En Gedi. I've read En Gedi. I'd never, I couldn't have told you that was even in the Bible. But I'd read it, and we got there, and I went, oh, wait, I've read about this. Now, don't just read it cover to cover, but dig in. Some people like to read a whole bunch of chapters. Some people like to read a few verses a day. I was reading a guy today. He said, man, I don't, I don't disparage any way. If somebody's reading and studying the Word of God, I'm all for it. He said, but people get caught up on reading. you got to read so many chapters a day. Don't get caught up in the legalism of, i got to read my five chapters today. I'm just flying through it. I don't know what I'm reading, but I'm going to read it and check it off. Yes, praise God. What would you read? I don't have a clue. He said, I'd rather get, get in four or five verses and just dig down in there. Just let the wheels spin a little while. Throw up some dirt. Find out what's in there. But I tell you, whatever it is, get in it. And, and it's not hard to get those chunks of gold. They're there. They're readily available. Okay. I'm, what's that? You love that? Amen. Well, I'm, I love it too. I'm gonna, that's why I'm going to stop right there. That's where we're going to stop. Because if I go further, we're going to go late. And right now,